0: This is the Room Now Podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions.
1: Hello, I'm Anthony Chan. I'm a consultant rheumatologist in Reading in United Kingdom, and I'm reporting here from ACR20. There have been a lot more interesting uh, posters and abstracts today in the conference. And I wanted to share with you uh, some of the abstracts which I thought were really interesting, especially in the field of axial spondyloarthritis. Now, as you know, the uh, the treatment in uh, axial spondyloarthritis has expanded. We have seen um, new modes of action, including IL-17 and also JAK inhibitors. Today, I want to concentrate. On the new data that's available in the field of axial spondyloarthritis, particularly in the mode of action which is from IL-17 inhibition. Now we know IL-17 uh, can form as a homodimer or an heterodimer, so it can um, bind uh, the IL-17 uh, in terms of IL-17A and IL-17F subtypes. And in the area of IL-17A, there are two agents that we currently use in our clinical practice, and uh, there are some up-to-date data from the conference today. Firstly, uh, in abstract number 1366, uh, there is a study looking at uh, the use of secukinumab, which is an IL-17A inhibitor, uh, and they've studied this in the non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis group. As you know, there are two groups, the non-radiographic and also the radiographic, what we know of as ankylosing spondylitis. In the non-radiographic group from the PREVENT study, they have now looked into a bit more detail. And what they've done, is they categorized the patients according to their MRI and CRP results. And what they found is that patients were either positive for both MRI and CRP or one. And they found that they were in fact, the, the treatment worked across all groups but the treatment was most effective in the MRI-positive and CRP-positive or the double-positive group. And they, were, they looked at outcome measures such as ASUS-40 and also other outcome measures such as the BASTI-50, ASUS partial remission, and also STS inactive disease. In the ASUS-40 group, the double-positive group achieved an ASUS-40 of 54% versus 21% in the placebo group, and very similar um, results uh, in the other groups where they were single positive. So I think this is a really encouraging result, a signal that we can see in the non-radiographic group. The other agent that's being used is called izacuzumab. Now this is another um, IL-17A agent, and the study is called because And in poster number 1367, they looked at the aspect of the effect of uh, IL-17A inhibition on work. Now, work is a big issue for our patients. Uh, there's a lot of absenteeism or presenteeism and uh, how we can look at these two aspects of the work in patients with axial spa. And they found that IL-17A inhibition with uh, isacuzumab improve productivity and also activity impairment and also presenteeism uh, and reduce absenteeism with treatment so again it's good to see that beyond our traditional measures of uh, efficacy such as asas 40 and besti there's also improvement in some of the uh, patient reported uh, mm-hmm. outcomes such as work exp- uh, and productivity so that's again a very positive signal now if you look at the l17 there's also the subtype l17f And there is a report today and uh, poster 1364, which looks at bimacuzumab. Now bimacuzumab uh, inhibits both IL-17A and F. So it's a combined dual inhibition of IL-17A and F. And they looked at the outcome measures uh, and the study is called Be Agile. And what they had done is they looked at the extension study beyond 48 weeks. So in the first part of the study, uh, they had uh, people, uh, patients going up to 48 weeks and what we saw in the first 48 weeks, there was a rapid response. Uh, within 12 weeks, uh, patients had already starting to respond to the treatment. 87% uh, of these percent of the patients carried on beyond 48 weeks, and they went on to 96 weeks. And when we looked at the non-responder imputation results of the ASAS 40, 65% of patients maintained uh, ASAS 40. Uh, at night, week 96, they ASAS partial remission was 36%, and the SDAS inactive disease was 28%. So this again shows the benefit of uh, IL-17 ANF inhibition. All these studies uh, tell us that the mode of action of IL-17 inhibition uh, is again increasing our choice of treatment and also the mode of action beyond uh, the other treatments. Um, And this is really an encouraging sign for us as we see of our patients and they uh, they vary and they have different clinical features and it's important for us to have choice when we make uh, some of the treatment decisions that we have in our clinic. I'm Anthony Chan reporting from ACR20, thank you.
2: Hi everyone, I'm Nicola Delbeth from uh, Auckland, New Zealand. Um, talking about some more gout abstracts from uh, the ACR 2020 meeting. Uh, so uh, I was really interested in a couple of abstracts today um, related to comorbidities in gout. So the first is abstract 1466, uh, which describes multimorbidity in various rheumatic diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and gout. So this is a study from the RISE registry so a rheumatology clinic-based registry, uh, really assessing the burden of, co- of uh, multi-morbidity in various rheumatic diseases. Uh, and uh, in this study, uh, pa- people with gout within rheumatology clinics had the highest rates of uh, multimorbidity. and not surprisingly, I think the uh, most common uh, comorbidities observed were metabolic and cardiac uh, risk categories. So I think this certainly gels with what we see in the rheumatology clinic, often patients with uh, comorbidities such as severe heart failure, kidney disease, are more likely to uh, come to our clinics because management of gout is more complex, Um, but uh, I think this really does raise quite a lot of challenges for us uh, in rheumatology clinics. Uh, and I think, given that we have a lot of focus at the moment on um, the role of comorbidities in uh, outcomes related to COVID, um, I think that this is uh, a particularly important area for people with gout. And we haven't really seen a lot of data on uh, outcomes for people with gout uh, related to COVID 19 infection. The other thing that's been really uh, important this year has been, uh, within the medical literature, has been a number of clinical trials uh, reporting outcomes of uh, common gout medications for other comorbidities. So I'm particularly thinking about a couple of allopurinol trials, uh, the PIRL trial, and also CKD-FIX trial, which tested uh, the role of allopurinol for Uh, prevention of CKD progression, both of which were negative. Uh, And also the uh, Colcott studies and uh, LodoCo2 study, uh, which reported improved cardiovascular outcomes in people treated with colchicine. Now, in both both the allopurinol studies and also the colchicine studies, uh, this didn't specifically include people with gout. But I think certainly this, again, raises... The possibility that some of the medications that we use for gout, particularly medicines like colchicine, may also have some benefits for comorbidities such as cardiovascular disease. The issue around kidney disease with allopurinol, I think, is, is probably uh, less clear, and, and in fact, there may not be benefit. Uh, related to this, there's also been a really interesting abstract, abstract 0660, um, which uh, reports on uh, the risk of gout uh, with SGLT2 inhibitors. So, of course, these are drugs that are used increasingly for people with type 2 diabetes, and a number of uh, studies have reported that uh, SGLT2 inhibitors uh, are actually are urate lowering and can also prevent the risk of uh, gout. And uh, this is a very interesting abstract because it suggests that some of the SGLT2 inhibitors um, may have a preferential effect on gout risk using the thin registry. So I think that uh, these are important abstracts. They really highlight the importance of thinking about comorbidities uh, for people with gout in our clinics, uh, and also uh, suggest that some therapies that we use for treatment of gout may have benefits for comorbidities and also vice versa. Some uh, medications used for comorbidities may be useful for prevention of gout as well. Thanks.
3: Hi, this is Dr. Eric Dine from Baltimore,
4: Maryland, checking in with room now at ACR Convergence. This is day three of abstracts. And today I'm gonna talk about uh, this morning at the poster sessions, there was great poster series on variety of, of different issues with regards to cardiovascular risks with rheumatoid arthritis. I'm gonna talk in particular about abstract zero, I'm sorry, abstract 1189. It's a poster by Dr. Husney at the Cleveland Clinic. And they looked at patients to, uh, as part of the precision biomarker study to try to get a sense of um, what risk factors we can use to best predict cardiovascular event in rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis. They looked at, in particular, high-sensitivity cardiac troponin, as well as high-sensitivity CRP, C-reactive protein, to predict major adverse cardiac events in these patients. The, The precision study, it's a large Uh, biomarker study looking at a large number of patients with RA and OA. They had 636 patients in RA and uh, over 6,000 OA patients in the subset that were having this analysis. And again, the primary outcome was the MACE events. Uh, What what they did was they enrolled these patients prospectively looking to see um, which patients had this outcome comparing to their, um, their initial High sensitivity biomarkers. The patient population, the mean age was about 64 years old. Uh, it was slightly female, 58% predominant, 80% Caucasian, 33% were seropositive with CCP antibodies, 18% had known CAD, 36% di- uh, had diabetes, 80% pretty high number with hypertension. Uh, so this was a, a population with some pretty good risk factors to go on to have Um, MACE events. When they looked at it, they they found that uh, the high sensitivity cardiac troponin was uh, uh, slightly higher in the osteoarthritis group, uh, and they found that it was predictive of having MACE events. Uh, So they had a fair fair number of events uh, that were captured in it, and they did find a, a predictive value in both the rheumatoid arthritis group as well as the osteoarthritis high sensitivity um, troponin had an odds ratio of a 1.6 um, increased risk for RA 1.2 in osteoarthritis. The prediction value of osteo- of the high sensitivity CRP was not quite as good. It was um, just barely met statistical significance in the RA group at 1.3 and did not show any, any predictive value in osteoarthritis. So, um, this is an interesting study for me in a couple ways. One is that we, we don't, um, the high sensitivity troponin is not something that we're clinically following right now. Uh, it's right that we see a patient that comes in with a baseline elevated troponin on a no- normal troponin uh, exam that we'll capture in the office. But um, this might be an early indicator. We do think a lot about the high sensitivity CRPs. We think about the overall inflammation which we would capture with the CRP. And that did not show to be quite as predictive and and in osteoarthritis, not predictive at all. Um, But thinking about patients that may have some some mild evidence of cardiac damage or some cardiac inflammation, um, or maybe some early cardiomyopathy that that we may be able to capture with this high high sensitivity troponin is important. I think generally, as you look at the posters in this session, there's really a lot of information about various risk factors, that are important for us to be aware of. Um, I'll talk elsewhere about the role of subclinical coronary calcification on CT angiogram studies, as well as carotid atherosclerosis that could be picked up on ultrasound. Um, I I think it's been incorporated more that rheumatologists should be thinking about lipid panels and statin initiation for rheumatoid arthritis. Um, But I think this is really indicating that we should go beyond that we often expect primary care to be the ones to carry this torch, but they don't recognize that uh, all of these factors, uh, atherosclerosis and inflammation are all higher in our patients and they're at a higher risk that the PCPs may underappreciate. And I think that's an indication that we should be driving this conversation and, and we should be thinking about what further workup we may need to do or how we wanna best involve uh, preventative cardiology and at what stage for our patients. Uh, so I think there's a lot more left to learn and, and to work uh, in the future. But I thought uh, all of these posters uh, that are collected in the Sunday morning poster uh, collection were phenomenal resources and great things to generate thoughts. This is Dr. Diane with Room Now. And looking forward to our final uh, Monday session tomorrow. And I'll be checking in uh,
3: periodically with more information.
1: Hello, I'm Anthony Chan. I'm a consultant rheumatologist in Reading, United Kingdom. And I'm here reporting from the ACR20. There are interesting abstracts again uh, today in the aspect of spondyloarthritis. And I wanted to share with you uh, some of the uh, the latest data from the study shown. Now, one of the challenges that we face globally is the delays to diagnosis in axial spondyloarthritis. Despite our many interventions uh, the average delays to diagnosis certainly across many countries can be somewhere between eight and a half to 10 years for ankylosing spondylitis. And there are a lot of uh, new initiatives worldwide, uh, certainly in the UK. We have just launched our new um, drive to reduce the delays to diagnosis. And when we looked at what happens on the ground level, we we often see patients with undifferentiated chronic back pain and we try to dis- distinguish whether they have mechanical back pain or inflammatory back pain. There exists uh, quite a few criteria for inflammatory back pain, such as the Kalin criteria, the Berlin criteria, the ASAS criteria. In poster 1303, Weber and colleagues very nicely studied the, uh, the sensitivity and uh, specificity of um, the various different um, inflammatory back pain criteria. What they did was from the SESPIC study, they looked at patients with undifferentiated back pain who were less than 45 years of age and had features of inflammatory back pain for three months or more. Now, these patients had either anterior uveitis, psoriasis, or inflammatory bowel disease. So they had an extra extratricular feature of axial spondyloarthritis. And when they had the presence of inflammatory back pain together with these extra-articular manifestations. They then used the different criteria to see which had the highest specificity and sensitivity of eventually having a diagnosis made by a rheumatologist as to having a diagnosis of axial spa, And they found that in the psoriasis patient, they've, they detected 45% of patients, a new diagnosis of uh, axial spa, 62% in the uveitis group, and 40% in the inflammatory bowel disease group. When they looked at all the different criteria, it appeared that the the criteria that worked best in terms of sensitivity and specificity was the ASAS modification of the original Berlin criteria. What is the ASAS modification of the Berlin criteria? This is when inflammatory back pain is no longer the mandatory feature of the criteria and inflammatory back pain becomes... SBA feature in the criteria as opposed to the original Berlin criteria where IBP is the mandatory feature. When the ASOS modification is made to the Berlin criteria, the sensitivity, sensitivity is about 76% and specificity 77.3%. Now this, is, this works quite well compared to some of the other um, criteria that they used in, in the study. So again, I think when we try to reduce the delays to diagnosis, Uh, We perhaps should be thinking about which criteria we use, how we use it in our clinical practice, and which groups of patients we would target. Another interesting study, thinking in terms of delays to diagnosis and how we can reduce that, is uh, poster number 1306, where they looked at patients who presented to the ophthalmologist with acute anterior uveitis with chronic back pain. They found that 53% of these patients who had uh, uveitis inflammatory back pain and the HLA B27 positivity was about 56%. And when they looked uh, into these patients and they had investigations and also they were looking for excess spondyloarthritis, at the end of the study 23% of the patients who presented uh, had a definite diagnosis of excess spondyloarthritis. So 23% of patients who with uh, uveitis presenting to the ophthalmologist eventually diagnosed by the rheumatologist as having axial spondyloarthritis. But interestingly, 41% um, also were not diagnosed at the time, but probably had probable axial spondyloarthritis and would then require some follow-up. So in total, 64% of the patients who presented with anterior uveitis had features of uh, either definite or probable altogether axial spondyloarthritis, and the delay uh, from the onset of the back pain was 10 years. So I think these studies today, uh, these two posters, perhaps will shape our kind of thinking about how we can reduce the delays to diagnosis, firstly having sensitive and specific criteria so that we are sure about who we should go on to investigate further, and maybe secondly thinking about how we can work together with our ophthalmologists, our dermatologists, and also our gastroenterologists to kind of work together to ensure that these patients who present in another specialty could then be referred or screened to ensure that we can pick them up as they may have uh, excess arthritis first presenting with an extraarticular manifestation. So hopefully we can uh, can pick uh, some of these points up and then try to bring it back to our clinical practice to reduce the delays to diagnosis. I'm Anthony Chan. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoy the conference.
3: Hi, David Liu from Melbourne,
5: Australia for a room now for ACR 2020. And I wanted to tell you a little bit more about some of the GACTA data. I know we've been talking about this for the last few years, but now we've got continuation data. And what we're doing is actually getting some really interesting data coming out of this about questions that we have about GCA and about MAB treated patients in GCA uh, which is proving really useful now that MAP is uh, close to being or is standard of care in GCA um, if and when it's available. So the first bit, uh, two, two abstracts presented by Sebastian Unizoni uh, at this meeting. The first one uh, related to the nature of flares on MAP, and I think there had been some concern previously that MAP uh, might be pushing down a part of the, the GCA response but the interferon gamma part of the response, the bit that might be actually concerning as far as intravascular events are concerned might actually be um, particularly a problem.
2: Uh,
5: so looking at the flares from, uh, on, for patients on distal are we seeing a whole bunch of um, patients with uh, visual manifestations or strokes? Well, thankfully not. Visual manifestations, very rare in, in the JETTA G- cohort as far as uh, flares on tocilizumab are concerned. The other question of course, is tocilizumab takes away, classically takes away your CRP and ESR. Are we seeing elevations in ESR and CRP uh, in these patients who are already being treated with tocilizumab and have flares of their giant arteritis, which we're detecting in other ways. Well, um, helpfully, um, if you take the ESI and CRP combined, uh, three quarters of patients um, have a raise in their ESI and CRP during a flare of their GCA uh, that, well, at least. As was defined by the clinician uh, when they were on tosilizumab. Now, having said that, a lot of the contribution there is from the um, from the ESR. So we're talking seventy one percent of the new onset GCA and sixty percent of the relapsing GCA had the increase in ESR and CRP was much less. So thirty five percent in the non uh, the new onset GCA and then forty percent in the um, the relapsing GCA. So really. Um, the question is, do we have anything else that can help us with trying to, a biomarker that can help us to try and detect flares in GCA patients who are treated with MAP? The next bit was that they looked at a few patients using some... Uh, quite nice um, technology really, using mass spec, um, but with tandem mass uh, tag technology uh, with a a multiplexed tandem mass tag, but basically to try and pick up the proteins that were getting um, increased in these patients with GCA um, relapses, comparing to the times when they weren't, uh, labeling them, indexing them, and try and understand where all these candidate proteins might sit. So they ended up um, seeing 344 candidate proteins and then ranking them. And right at the top of the list uh, was haptoglobin. Now that's something which we can use, which we can order right now. Uh, And that's something that was going back to the 1980s. Sarah Mackey has uh, pointed out to me some of the literature regarding this, that in fact, there there are descriptions of haptoglobin capsoglobin being really useful when inflammatory markers weren't well, conventional inflammatory markers, ESR and CRP, weren't elevated. Now, of course, we want to see this in prospective study. We want to validate this in different cohorts. But it certainly raises the prospect that there probably are biomarkers out there that can help us when patients are receiving introsolizumab. Now, I should say as well, they took a bundle. If you take the top 10 and you put them together, you get a really nice um, perform- uh, test performance you get really nice um, uh, AUC on this, but really, I think looking at hapsoglobin, that's something simple, and that might be something which might be at your clinic bedside soon. For more on vasculitis and on everything that's at
3: ACI 2020, head along to Hi ACR 2020. Uh, this is Dr. Robert Chow coming to you live uh, from Room Now. Uh, I'm joined today by Dr. Monica Guma. Uh, I'd like to first start off by uh, letting you introduce yourself, Dr. Guma.
0: Hi, hi Robert. Uh, I'm Monica Guma, and I'm a rheumatologist uh, at UCSD uh, and uh, doing research in uh, rheumatoid arthritis and, and diet.
3: Great, great. Yeah. So. The reason why we have you on today is I I saw you had a very interesting uh, uh, talk uh, on the trial of diet to impact rheumatoid arthritis and gut microbiome. So obviously a lot of questions. I'm going to start off with the most important question. Um, You know, what should we be eating and what should my patients be eating? And please tell me it's more hamburgers.
0: Well, not hamburgers, I'm sorry. <laughs> no hamburgers in the diet. I think that um, there are like a, a lot of data already, and actually, a lot of like websites, even the, some rheumatology uh, good websites, that they also like have um, ideas and advices for the patient. So it's true that we sometimes don't know how to answer that question, but if you Google, you go to these like a foundations, they already give a lot of information, and, and, and we know what kind of diet they need to eat. There is like a a uh, more classical Mediterranean kind of diet or, or, or more like a, like a plant-based diet, as we, uh, as, as we know. And there are some data about that. I think that the only difference now is that we can really focus more on the mechanism. But the advice to the patients, I think is easy to give this kind of advice and, and not hamburgers, not red meat. That, <laughs> that's for sure. The first okay. thing you have to forbid actually is the red meat. Okay.
3: Yeah. I, I, I can say I, I tried and asked. Like, my people asked <laughs> ask me. Um, so, you know, I, I went through the study and I saw your diet, you know, the one that you, you, you tested on, you know, was, I think it's feasible. Um, did you find any issues with adherence, especially long term adherence? Mm-hmm. So,
0: the, the trial that we will uh, present in, the, in our presentation mm-hmm. uh, tomorrow. It was, it was really um, like a pilot trial. So we actually wanted to see if the patients, they were more also adherent to the whole trial itself because we wanted uh, stool samples, blood samples. So that some, sometimes is difficult. So the test, the trial was only between two, three weeks. So it was a short trial. And we, we have no problems for adherence in this short term trial. The, we, when we build the diet, we build the diet with the feedback um, helping um, feedback from other patients, so we already kind of like a put the right schedule, uh, right kind of like instructions to to help uh, like a like a more like a higher number of patients to be able to follow the diet. So I think this diet is really feasible and is and it's easy to to be adherent. What I think is difficult at long term is not to take the things that they are forbidden. So for our patients, it was easy for them for two or three weeks to stop. <laughs> Drink, drinking soda or to stop uh, uh, eating hamburgers, okay. But if you want to do a long-term diet, some of these things you need to be more flexible because there is no way a, a, a real patient will be able to to follow uh, so strict and so kind of like the, the diet. But that's okay because if you if you change 80% of your diet is of course much better than 0%, you know? So right. even if you, uh, once, once in a while, you are going to uh, do a transgression and probably you will feel that day maybe some, some pain or some swelling, is our own decision to say, okay, okay. But the, 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 the rest of the time you are eating uh, different and you are changing these, uh, uh, we don't know if microbiome or metabolites or both that helps the, um, the inflammation. Got it,
3: got it. Go. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned, you know, it was a, a two to three week study, um, as far as, you know, the results, I, I think I saw very interesting results. Would you comment on that? And, and do you think it was surprising to you, or was this what you expected?
0: So, the, the thing that was surprising to me was actually the, the fatigue. So we mm. were, so the patients, when we, we saw them two or three uh, weeks later, but we, we gave them the que- questionnaires so they could really like uh, um, give some feedback in between. So then at the end of the trial, after the three weeks when they came back to the, our clinics, we collected the questionnaires and we asked them their feedback. And the, the, one of the most important things or, or, or things that we didn't expect is that very, very, very shortly, like maybe in three, four, five days, they noticed uh, a decrease of the fatigue and increase of the energy and feeling better overall. It doesn't mean that that was specifically the joints. I'm talking about general uh, improvement. Okay, that was quite quite uh, homogeneous. Then another thing that it was also interesting is that, of course, we don't have placebo, so we it's very limiting, know, How we 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 uh, interpret the results? But it was obvious that some patients the improvement was really striking, like a really swelling when gone. Literally gone. Okay. And other patients that they didn't respond so well. And in the, in the analysis, that we could, we cannot blame that to the adherence because most of them, the adherence was quite, quite okay. So we have to, uh, to think that or to, or to interpret that is something intrinsic, that even if uh, changing the diet in the same way, not everybody was responding the, the, the same. So again, short term. We don't know if the patients that didn't respond; they would respond in a longer um, trial, okay? Or the ones that they responded, it was only like a short term. Who knows? Maybe then at the end. So that's why we are now doing a, a, a longer trial. But that was the, the, the feedback that we were getting from the patients. Overall, very good in terms of like a fatigue, energy, like a well-being. But then in uh, when we went specifically with the joint and swelling, I mean tender joints, swollen joints. The, um, the result was like a 50-50 of like a super good response or only very like a moderate or no, or no response,
3: yeah. yeah. So, I, I still think it's very surprising to even see a 50-50 swollen joint count improvement in three weeks with, you know, diet change. Any, any, um, do you have any information on were these diet changes from someone, let's say, who was on a very bad diet or were they already, quote unquote, on a healthy diet and now they're on a healthier diet?
0: So, um so we so we know that the patients that they did respond better they they were already on a healthier diet that we know that's why we think that maybe some patients they need more time to respond so patients that they were already uh, taking uh, uh, eating a lot of like a vegetables and they were like overall having what we we uh, name no like a, like a diet score because we had to to score the diet somehow no so we, they were already on a better diet the score they responded better that's that's what we know okay then that adherence, adherence after all was very similar but going back to what you said about um, you you um, is, is is surprising not to respond to too, too quick and that again is because it's short term so that you, you have to be limited you know that our patients when well, sometimes they come to our clinics and you ask how have you been doing in the last three months they say overall well but they had a couple of weeks that I felt really bad. So it's true that sometimes the, the, the disease has some flares that it can be environmental and we don't know and that they get, get very, very well controlled. So I think that some of these um, things that people don't realize or they do sometimes, they tell me, I had a bad week, but that week I was traveling and I was eating a lot of like a, um, junk food. They, they actually, they realize that they don't know the ingredients that they realize. So I think that you can actually like um, uh, having you you, you can potentially be taking something that you don't know that is actually inflammatory in your diet that you don't know, and then you remove that thing and you feel better. So the thing is probably, that that thing is not the same for all the patients. That's why you have to change the diet overall. But maybe that patient is only the gluten. You know what I mean? Or maybe it's only the milk. That is the next step, try to be more personalized. But yes, I think that's, that situation. that's the situation. That's why they do respond, yeah. Right.
3: And I think the second part of your study that was very interesting commented on the gut microbiome. You know, I think that's a big topic again this year. And I think, you know, also many ACRs in the past. Can you comment on what you found as far as gut microbiome, the diet, and of course, in relation with our diseases?
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we, we know that um, that the microbiome, there is a dysbiosis in, in arthritis. We don't know if that's the cause, of the, qu- the consequence, so that's very important. We 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 know all, there is a lot of data, but we still know very little. Okay, because it's very dif- it's very different. If that's a consequence of being sick, and of course you will have changes, and they, they are not related to the disease, or really these are the the cause. Okay, so m- more more data about that. But in terms of like a diet. It's already known that diet is not the most important um, like, a, like a factor that changes the microbiome, especially in an adult uh, person. So an adult person has a history of tons of factors that is actually shaping the microbiome. And the microbiome is quite, quite robust. So maybe you can shift the microbiome a little bit, but it will go back to the, what it was before. So the microbiome overall, we didn't see big changes. What we are analyzing in detail now is maybe as a specific bacteria, maybe that is the one that you are changing. So we were not, we were not detecting big changes. There is a lot of like um, uh, ways to interpret the microbiome is called, it's kind of like a diversity. Okay. How diverse is your, your microbiome? We didn't see much changes on that. We saw that the patients that they did respond, they have, they have like a better, larger diversity that, that correlates sometimes with healthier diet. Okay. but it didn't change much, but we are now seeing if some specific microbe actually was changing, and that maybe, maybe it can, it can be uh, causal and not consequence. We still don't know. Okay, so that that thing. On the other hand, um, what we are so, and, and I'm not really an expert on microbiome. I I analyze microbiome because um, is the way to interpret the meta, the metabolites. That is what I'm, I'm very interested. So circulating metabolites makes sense that they can be also pro or anti-inflammatories. And that is the, um, like the product between diet and microbiome. So maybe the microbiome doesn't change much, but because you're changing the diet, you are changing the final product, it's all the metabolites, the circulating metabolites, that probably 67%, uh, 70%, they depend on the diet. So those metabolites are the ones that we are analyzing in detail to see if some of them are actually correlated strongly with um, uh, in, in improving, improving after, after diet. That would be a little bit the conclusions, no, of our mm-hmm. uh, of our like um, trial. Again, limited for the, the time and the design, but that's how we are building the next trial to try to answer these, these questions. Great.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your input and you know you're explaining for everything else, uh, to us in detail. Yeah. Uh, definitely a very fascinating topic. We look forward to your upcoming trials and the longer studies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from Room Now, this is Dr. Robert Chow and uh, Dr. Monica Guma. Uh, thank you for tuning in and for full coverage. Continue to follow Room Now and uh, follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thank you. Thank
0: you.